As the world hurtles toward the trumpet judgments and the great soul harvest prophesied in scripture, Rayford Steele and Buck Williams begin searching for their loved ones from different corners of the world, from Iraq to America, from six miles in the air to underground shelters, from desert sand to the bottom of the Tigris River, from hope to devastation and back again, all in a search for truth and life. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that examines the Left Behind book series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Almost forgot who I was for a second, but how's it going, Gav? Uh, pretty good. Uh, this book is pretty decent so far. We were talking a little bit off mic, and uh, we're definitely not in tribulation force territory. But it's still a uh, it's it's a it's a pretty good journey so far. I think we're holding steady. I think we've found our stride as we open up the first part of Soul Harvest: The World Takes Sides. We finally made it to the Green Book. We start getting uh, like Tim LaHaye's quote unquote Illuminati clout starts to take a little bit hold in this book. We get <sighs> some like dark magic, so to speak. The the Stephen King of this story is really starting to come on like we're getting there i don't think we really hit that until five and i keep telling you this like let's get to five let's get to five but stick with us through four there's more appetizers before we get to some of the main course speaking of appetizers i'm gonna go ahead out front and drop a content warning for the majority of this episode this isn't one where we can give you a time code it's just kind of sprinkled in throughout. There's a lot of violence, a lot of trauma. It's the aftermath of a disaster. So, you know, there's a lot of people in peril, a lot of people in pain, a lot of people who have been horrifically injured and some pretty graphic descriptions of that stuff. Not much that you wouldn't see in like an R-rated disaster movie, but if that's not really your thing, maybe sit this one out. Yeah, definitely the the thing that we were touching on a little bit last book about these books being bloodthirsty is definite in Soul Harvest. Oh yeah, it's definitely. So make sure you're, you know, kind of got your listening ears on for this one. It's cool if you sit it out. Just make sure you stay on this long so we get the download. <laughs> <laughs> and leave us a review too while you're at it. Um, so with that out of the way, for those of you that opted to stick around, welcome. Let's kind of dive right into here. So we're coming off the heels of Nikolai. The world of Left Behind has been irrevocably changed. Right. Now, this is something I think, and I don't know how you feel about it, is kind of on par with the Rapture event. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's what they were going for. So when we ended Nikolai, it was with the cataclysm of the Wrath of the Lamb. Worldwide earthquake. Almost everywhere, we're going to hear about an exception. Like, total devastation. 
unlike anything humanity has ever experienced. We talked about last time how it's kind of geologically improbable, if not impossible, that something like this would happen is, you know, it's kind of a miracle that this happens, but like not in a good way. Yeah, the the last like really big uh, event for context, like Tribulation Force that had like the nukes and stuff, but that only affected one location. This, like you said, is uh, very much mirroring left behind where a world event happens. And so everyone is affected. And that changes the very landscape of how plot lines have to unfold a lot like the first one did. Yeah, it very much puts us in that aftermath of a disaster headspace. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's the setting. And we are opening up on a world that has been ripped to shreds, literally. And that is going to be forced to rebuild. So it's it's really a setting change overall for all the characters, good and bad. The slate has been wiped clean and they are going to start over in a different way. I think the world post-rapture that they had built up had kind of worn out its novelty. And I'm starting to see this as I'm going back through the books that pretty much every three books or so, you get a real big world-changing event. Yeah. And then the characters have to deal with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm starting to see that pattern, too, now that we're four books in. So this particular judgment, the Wrath of the Lamb, was the sixth of the seven seal judgment. Now, there is a seventh, and we talked about last week where you hear about the seventh seal and things like that. Um, And that is in Revelation 8, verses 1 through 6. Um, I know you got your ESV there with you. Do you mind hitting us with that? The seventh seal and the golden censer. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So there's a lot that goes on in that description. Mm -hmm. So for those of you that may not know what a censer is, is, it is one of those ornate, like incense burners um you may associate them more with like catholic worship services they're usually on a chain and they kind of swing them back and forth and they smoke you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah yeah. it's uh i i I more commonly see them in like catholic processions exactly Yeah, yeah that is what the angel is filling up and he's filling it up with the prayers of the saint the idea of incense as a tool of worship to a deity and that goes back like forever yeah and you see it across Jewish tradition, Christian tradition. There's a lot of different moments where incense is used, but basically because smoke rises, that goes up to the deity and the deity is able to receive the offering, right? Well, in this case, it's being used as a metaphor or as an analog to the prayers coming from the saints. And I think that those are going to be the same saints that were around the throne in the white robes that we talked about last time. The angel takes the censer, throws the burning ashes onto the earth, so I think they were a little unclear about what this seventh judgment was. Uh, in the previous book, I think even Ray said he wasn't sure, but there was silence in heaven for half an hour and it was really bad. Um, now we know. We found that out at the very end of Nikolai and we're seeing the aftermath of it here. Meteors. 
Yeah, big ones. Yeah, big old meteors. That's the way that LaHaye is interpreting this, is that the the fires from the sensor fell on the earth. Um, so a bunch of meteors are falling. Like this, Not to overuse a phrase that's already been kind of worn out, but it is apocalyptic, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So with that, we have closed out the seven seal judgments. We are a third of the way there, kids. Right. And uh, do you want to go ahead and get into chapter one? Yeah, I want to give a little bit more of a recap. Just want to give the couple of things that stuck out. Status quo way. Buck has made it safely to New Hope Village Church, where he has found the body of Loretta. Ray is in New Babylon. He and Mac McCollum and Nikolai Carpathia barely escaped the collapsing GC building on a helicopter. Witness the blood moon. And when they land, Ray... Anger finally gets the best of him. He snaps and he roughs up Nikolai and says a cool one line. So Ray has all but punched his boss, the Antichrist, and Buck has found and Buck has found the dead body of arguably the most likable member of the Tribulation Force. Rest in peace, Loretta. Yeah, she was a real. <laughs> all right, so I'll let you take us into the chapter one. Well, we get probably my favorite opening line of any of the books so far. We get, Rayford Steele wore the uniform of the enemy of his soul, and he hated himself for it. I don't hate that line, dude. <laughs> it sure beats his mind was on a woman he'd never touched, or right. the worst of times, the worst, the worst of, of times. times. <laughs> like, man, as far as opening lines go, I don't even remember what Tribulation Force's opening line was. It was probably bad. Yeah, it was bad. (laughs) Um, And let's see. So yeah, any prayer of finding his wife alive depended on how quickly he could get to her. So this begins kind of a parallel narrative between Rayford and Buck, where they're both looking for their wife who is missing. So it's a big game of where in the world is my wife? (laughs) Where in the world is my wife? Yeah, so they're both looking for their wife, and Rayford at this point just wants to cut ties with Carpathia, but he knows that that's not really an option, and he just keeps on going anyway. He starts kind of like looking at the uniform he has on and just feeling utter disgust, even like wanting to rip off the patches, but... Apparently, the craftsmanship on this uh, jacket's pretty good, and those patches aren't budging. Spare no expense! (laughs) Rayford is called in by Carpathia, and Carpathia says, Though we both know how I could respond to your egregious disrespect and insubordination, I choose to forgive you. So for some reason, Nikolai still wants Rayford on his crew. Like, even though Rayford punched him, pretty much uh, gave him a big, you know, screw you, buddy. What a guy. What a forgiving, magnanimous, just a real son of a gun, this Nikolai Carpathia. (laughs) Look, he turns the other cheek. Yeah. Look, he doesn't let his anger get the best of him. Just, just what a, what a swell guy. Real Saint Nick, this fella. Good old Santa Claus, (laughs) always bringing in the gifts. And, and he's so nice. He's like, you know, if, if you should find a way back to New Babylon after you're done with your quest to find your wife, come to the headquarters and there's a password to get in, which is Operation Wrath. So, and that tips off that Carpathia is a bit more in the know about prophecy than Rayford had realized. Yeah, something makes me think uh, Nikolai just didn't happen to peruse a Gideon Bible that was left in his nightstand. Like, he knows. He knows all this. And that's actually, again, 
something that I think in the context of this story makes him a good villain. Yeah. Like he's not stupid. Yeah. He's always one step ahead. That's one thing about this series that I have to hand it to him. It is very easy in this kind of fiction to write stupid characters. Yeah. Right. Characters who through their flaws or through their mistakes kind of move the plot forward. Pretty much everybody in the main character roster is very competent. Yeah. I would say they border on being too competent. I don't think that they trip over into like a Mary Sue territory with like the exception of maybe Buck. Right. Sorry to come for your boy like that, but. I mean, uh, Buck, Buck is in, in some way you can tell. That Jerry has kind of just made like a stand-in for himself. Yes, like Buck is very much the uh, the Jerry OC. <laughs> so uh, I can see that. Yeah, but I mean, you you get what I'm saying though. Like yeah. it's nobody is dumb on a level of um, you know that it's their own ignorance that moves the plot forward. I don't think that. I think that maybe except Verna, Verna, maybe, um, but I wouldn't, I would put her more as an obstacle. Yeah. Almost an antagonist, a minor one, obviously, but at this point in the story anyway. Gotcha. But Nikolai is competent. Ray is also competent. Mac is, Buck is, Chloe is. I think really the only person who is written to be dumb. I'm sure you already know. Oh, Hattie. Yeah. <laughs> took me a second. I'm like, okay. I think she's about the only one. Yeah. Zion is competent. You know, they're all competent in their own way. So that's actually a, a positive that I have to say about these books. Okay. We find out that, yeah, Nikolai knew, like he's obviously reading the Bible. Like he knows, like he's, he's playing out his role in the saga. So we want to cut to Buck. So Buck is going through the rubble near the ventilation shaft where he had heard the clear, healthy voice of Rabbi Zion ben Judah trapped in the underground shelter. He's freaking out already. He just went through a major traumatic event. He assures Sion that he'll return to him, but he, he heads towards the safe house to try to find Chloe in the rubble. Yes. Now, before he leaves the church, though, mm -hmm. we do find another casualty. Oh. He finds Donnie Moore's body and his briefcase. Yeah, and he even looks like, and he's not even in good shape either. He pulls his glasses out of his pocket and it describes him as a scarecrow, hair wild, eyes white with fear, mouth open and sucking air. Yeah, Donnie didn't go a good way. Right. And that's the first instance of like a really mangled kind of unnerving description. And we'll get we'll get more of those. Oh, yeah. Like there's a beat and then we get another one. Curled in a frail ball atop the wreckage was a raggedy and like body of Loretta. Oh, God. Buck is just steps out of the shelter he was in, just sees like just carnage and utter horrors. And that I read these when I was in middle school, and I don't think any of this registered. Really? It was like, oh, people died. Yeah. yeah. But definitely, if you take a step back and like put yourselves in their shoes, they're having to like go through untold horrors. Yeah. I mean, and I felt it a lot more this time around. Mm hmm. So Buck kind of tries to pick his way through what he thinks is the way to Loretta's house. Now, Loretta's house isn't that far away from the church, but nothing is recognizable. It's like a new landscape, mm -hmm. kind of like the book is now. Cell towers are down, buildings are down, landmarks are gone, giant crags of asphalt and earth have risen up. There's cars on fire. You'd need a compass to know which way. 
Mexico. Even with the Range Rover's built-in compass, Buck is kind of disoriented. Like, all the landmarks are gone, and that's a, that's a big theme of this book. Everyone's kind of disoriented. Like, the conditions that they're used to has been reset even more. I know we hit on this before, but yeah, definitely it's like the rapture times like two of what- Oh man, do we do we hit a motif yeah. here? That everybody's uprooted and, and they, they can't get their bearings? Yeah. <laughs> so everyone's kind of disoriented. We get some heavy rain level stuff where they're just like both kind of just yelling for their loved ones through the carnage. So it's not, not much hope right now. Yeah, man. And to highlight a couple more of the- moments of trauma just before we we close out of this chapter and move on into two ray sees a man walking through the sand because we're intercutting between ray and buck we do a lot of that in this section ray sees a man walking through the sand who is kind of just very slowly walking glazed over looking his eyes and sort of mumbling to himself and as he passes ray he has a giant piece of a plane sticking out of him and ray throws up his hands to god and goes why are you showing me this It's a fantastic question, Ray. You're not going to get an answer, buddy. I'm sorry. He gets a call from Carpathia and like gets Carpathia to translate what this man is saying. And he's and he literally is saying, you cannot help me. Leave me alone. Yeah. And then Buck has a moment where he sees a woman screaming for death. He tries to get out of the Range Rover and go help her. And then as he's running toward her, she cuts her own throat with a shard of glass. And he tries to give her mouth to mouth while she's bleeding from the throat, which I thought was an odd choice. Yeah. I just wrote. Uh, I guess it's that trope of knowing someone is dead or dying, but like trying anyway fruitlessly. Yeah, and I think that's probably a, a realistic, you know, shock response. You know, and Buck's not an EMT. Like, that's not his job, so he doesn't have training. I guess realistically, somebody in that situation with no training might just snap into, uh, uh, let me just try this. Yeah. So we get into chapter two. Buck starts driving toward Loretta's house, just seas of wounded and screaming people and dead people. And to just kind of paint the scene, the book talks about how, like, the chunks, those crags of asphalt and earth in the road are, like, four feet, five feet high. So, like, look out your window if you're driving and just imagine if, like, okay, cool, now the road is intermittently just mountains, like, of rock and uh, dirt and asphalt that are just, like, up in your way. Mm -hmm. You'd probably get out of your car at this point, but Buck is bound and determined to get where he needs to go. Then he finally um, comes across a fire truck and a bunch of police officers, and they're like, hey, you all right? And they ask him if he wants to help with the relief effort, but he's like, no, I got to get some people on my own. They're like, well, don't be trying to get into any of these homes because they're worried about looters and about people getting hurt. And Buck uh, kind of throws him a quip and like, what are you going to do? Arrest me? Is there even a jail to take me to? And it was like, brush him off after that. Yeah, they just kind of like, say, like, whatever, man. And like, I don't know, that just always seems like a real right wing talking point whenever there's a disaster is they're instantly worried about looters. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that? Yeah, 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 definitely. Like whenever some kind of big like event like that happens, like it seems like Fox News is immediately going to cover the looting. And they, they just hone in on that. And it's just, it's gross. Didn't like it. But I mean, that again, that's one of those things that just gets brought up and then instantly dismissed. Like the cop just basically shrugs. Loretta's house is flattened. Oh, yeah. Like 
pile of popsicle sticks that have just fallen in on themselves, like almost straight down. And I wrote in my notes, this is really grim. Oh yeah. Like there, you get grim descriptions of the destruction and a lot of lines like, no one could have survived that. Things aren't looking rosy in the Chloe direction right now. They're definitely sourcing a lot of themes from the book of Job in this one. And I feel like uh, the book of Job will be something that we kind of allude to more and more in this because definitely it is a case of a lot of bad things are happening to the characters and there's no real like stop to it. And they just have to keep on like trusting and believing in the plan. Oh God, trust the plan. Yeah, tr trust the plan. It'll buff out. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> oh, that's awful. And except in this case, there really is a satanic conspiracy. Right. So we cut back to Ray again, and he's rocking across the shattered runway. He sees hundreds of bodies, like people hanging out of downed planes. They basically describe people like splattered on the runway. Ray felt as if he were in hell was the line that I wrote down. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because he's being whipped by the sand. There's like a sandstorm kicking up. Like the, the earth is unrecognizable. You can't even see like where you're going. And there's a long procession of just people shambling in the same direction, just kind of assuming that the person in front knows where they're going Ugh. and then we get a little bit of an action scene yeah he comes across a sand-blown but easily recognizable humpback fuselage of a 747 he hopes that amanda is in there it says his heart sank when he drew close enough to see that this was not a pancon 747 but a british airways jet he was struck with such conflicting emotion that he could barely sort them out what kind of cold selfish person is so obsessed with the survival of his own wife that he would disappoint and be disappointed that hundreds of people might have been saved on this plane yeah, but then good boy Ray actually does the right thing. Like he gets in there because the plane is basically, I almost saw like a Moses parting the Red Sea image. Like it's these two walls of sand with the wings of the plane wedged in and it's not hitting the ground. It's like 20 feet off the ground or something. Ray basically talks one of the crew through walking people out on the wings so that they can then clamber up and get off the plane. He had to face the ugly truth. He cared most about Amanda in reference to what you said earlier. And I can't really be mad at that. Mm -hmm. Like, I completely understand if my partner was unaccounted for in something like this. I don't know if I would have stopped. I probably, like, my conscience would have probably put me there. I've never been through anything like that been very fortunate but like you know that has got to be heart-wrenching to go through that yeah definitely and i can i can empathize with that as well because like i mean rayford's going through massive amounts of trauma so like any sense of normalcy is just what he's looking for he needs to just see someone again that he knows and hear from someone that's not nikolai carpathia which is pr one of the only people that he has uh, recognized that he's heard from exactly he hasn't heard from buck he has no idea idea how his family or his friends are doing. He's just sort of trudging forward like that long column of people through the devastation trying to do what he can. Mm -hmm. So Buck climbs onto the roof of Loretta's house and he sort of tries to make his way through. Because I mean, if you imagine, I think they said Loretta's house was three stories. Mm-hmm. Three stories stacked on top of each other now kind of compressed. He's sort of trying to make his way through to at least find the bedroom or somewhere where Chloe might be. And the whole time he's thinking, she's dead. I can only hope it's quick and painless, but it's very likely my wife is dead. Yep, and uh, he starts just digging through the Loretta's house. He has no, like, equipment. It's just- No gloves, even. Yeah, no gloves, no work clothes, no goggles, no helmet. 
all he had was basically like just his filthy rags of clothes. And to me, this kind of reminds me of Tony Stark without his suit. Yeah, he doesn't have all of his cool equipment that he's always buying and collecting. So yeah, he's in a really low place and it's something that feels very immediate and real. Right. I did write Buck's not very good at this rescue thing. Yeah, he's trying, but he's not doing well. Does he call out to her? Does it say that he calls out to her? Because Alex was listening to this with me and she said, is he yelling her name? Like, because I'm pretty sure she'd respond if she was there. Yeah, yeah. This is even where I wrote in the heavy rain thing. He pushed into where Chloe often sat at a small desk. It took him another half an hour to dig through there, calling her name every so often. So yeah, definitely it's like, that one scene in Heavy Rain where you press X to yell for Jason. Yes, press X to yell for your son. <laughs> it's uh, it's that. Are we dating ourselves with a Heavy Rain reference? I think so. <laughs> Look it up, kids. Just make a Detroit become human reference instead. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, then we're back to Ray again, and they sort of talk about how he's walking everybody off the plane, and the plane collapses, and there's this big harrowing moment, but everybody's okay. Yeah. He ends sort of his interaction with this particular group of people by saying, Amanda was not here, and this was a place of death. And I said, yeah, bud, so is everywhere. Almost everywhere. We're going to get to that. Do uh, the characters know that this has been worldwide yet, or do, uh, do they know the full extent of what's going on? I don't know if they do. And I think of all people... Ray probably has the most reason to think this is isolated because he's in like Devil City. Yeah, communication is cut off, so he has no way to really check. So yeah, I, I, I'd make that assumption. I think so, but I think Ray also knows because of Bruce and because of the prophecy stuff that it will be worldwide. Okay. I think he understands. I don't think his brain has kind of let him fathom that yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to have some self-protection mechanisms in there somewhere. You can't think about it. <laughs> oh, real quick, before we get back to Buck, Mac picks up Ray in the chopper and says, hey man, you and I need to talk in a bad way. Ah. Uh, and then we cut back to Buck. Okay, so we get back to Buck and finally Zion shows up because the, he hears him through the, the ventilation shaft of the underground shelter. They're both like really overjoyed because they're finally reconnecting. Zion says that he wants to get out to help with the rescue effort. They communicate that, hey, give me a few days before we can get any communication open, but they assume Amanda should be there with Rayford by now but they obviously are in the dark about that they assume that if ray is with nikolai he's safe yes because even this worldwide earthquake isn't going to take out nikolai carpathia before the appointed time Mm -hmm. so buck digs zion out with some tools that he took from loretta's and they find donnie moore's briefcase and they actually have a little bit of an ethical discussion about whether or not to open Donnie's briefcase. They decide they're going to because there could be valuable information in there. And But they're like, okay, we're going to open it, but if we find anything personal that's not our business, we're not going to read it. Which, like, okay. The biggest revelation, and I don't know if you have this in your notes, but the biggest revelation at the end of chapter two is that Zion asks, well, where was Chloe's car? Ah. Because it wasn't outside. Yeah, they're assuming that Chloe must be somewhere, like, dead in the wreckage. Well, they assume that it's either that or she got away. Yeah, okay. We now have another element to the where's Chloe saga. Did she get away? Is the car in the wreckage, you know, whatever, because Chloe usually parked on the street. Then we hit chapter three. How'd you feel about this one? Well, this is the chapter where they get back to the shelter, right? Or is that- You you call it a shelter. I call it a Dr. Evil underground lair. Oh yeah, Antichrist underground is- (laughs) The the, the margins of my book. Bro, it's a sci-fi bunker. (laughs) 
So it's this huge concrete like orb underneath the sand and there's like a fake runway that leads into it. You can park the Condor 216 down in there and it has living quarters and kitchens and offices and communications equipment and it's all built inside of a membrane of hydraulic fluid with like springs so it is completely earthquake proof. Oh wow. For the most part. The entrance did get covered with sand but they brought in movers to get the sand out of the way, open it up and get everybody in there. So they're basically riding out whatever aftershocks there are inside of this state-of-the-art concrete bubble. Which just adds to Carpathia's foreknowledge of this because, yeah, it's earthquake-proof. So he knew that this event was coming and oh, yeah. to uh, make a, uh, a backup shelter to commandeer the rebuilding of the world. And as is Carpathia style, spare no expense. Oh, yeah. Yep, so Mac is explaining to Ray... It's like, dude, we got to talk. We went down in there. We were trying to take in a head count and Leon wasn't among the survivors. Then Nikolai went pale and he specifically said, we'll see about that. Yep. They found the dead Leonardo and Nikolai calls out Leonardo come forth and from a black nothingness like the deepest sleep a person could ever have. He says he woke up, came back from the dead when he heard his name called. So. Any of you who went to Sunday school may recognize a couple of parallels there. Specifically, this is very much John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, a.k.a. the rising of Lazarus. I'm not going to read this entire thing. There's a man named Lazarus who was sick that lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha, who have been trying to heal him for a while, and they seek out the assistance of Jesus to heal the man. Jesus is heading there, and he gets there too late. Lazarus is dead. And this is where we get the iconic verse, Jesus wept. Yes, yes, that is where Jesus wept was from. I had forgotten about that. Yep, and so they told him, Lord, come see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived um, at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The, the smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, Thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe you sent me. Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave cloths, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. There we go. Direct parallel. I remember when I first read this, immediately recognizing the story when I was in, you know, back in middle school. Because when you're a kid in Sunday school, you get told the story of Lazarus a lot. Mm -hmm. Because the story of Lazarus is kind of one of those Bible stories that foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus. At least a lot of scholars sort of look at it that way. He raised one person from the dead. We're going to show that he can do this. And the rolling of the stone out from the tomb. I think it was four days instead of three. Or rather, he was in the tomb for three days. And I think that there's a significance 
to three days. Like there is, there is some kind of, at least I was always told this growing up in Sunday school that after three days, the spirit is thought to completely make its way to the afterlife in some cultures. Okay. Like it may hover around the body for a few days, but once you hit three, no chance. Yeah. That person's not coming back. I and mean, that's why the third day rising again is such a big deal. Yeah. So he's foreshadowing the resurrection of Jesus through Jesus performing a resurrection. And the big thing that I took away from this Nikolai is now laying the groundwork for what you said in some previous episodes, declaring himself a deity. Yeah. Because Jesus says in that passage, hey, Father, I'm not doing this out loud so that you know. I'm doing this out loud and in front of all these people so that they know who I am and who sent me. Yeah. And from whom I get my power. Very much what Nikolai is doing here. Before we move on to the next little vignette, we get a funny line where Rafer goes, he's no God man. He's anti-God man. Yes. <laughs> he got the newspeak in there. There's your, your left behind newspeak and it is not coming from the GC. It's coming from one of our Christian characters. <laughs> yeah. How would you say anti-God man in, uh, in newspeak, Gavin? Double plus ungod. Double plus ungod. All right. <laughs> I saw that and I wrote it down. I was like, Gavin's going to love this one. And yeah, we also get a very graphic description of Leon's death because he's telling everybody, as you would think he would. He's becoming kind of a witness for Nikolai, if you want to put it that way. Like he's a convert immediately. Another line that stuck out to me, and I think we talked about this in the episode three wrap-up about Eli and Moisha. Ray actually says that the Bible says it's appointed to a man once to die. Yeah. The witnesses themselves are Moses and Elijah. They are not reborn or not alive again. Strictly speaking, they are something else. Yeah. Because uh, that's one of the things Tim LaHaye said was that it is appointed to a man once to die. And even though, as we covered, Elijah didn't die, Moses definitely did. Whatever Eli and Moisha are, they are something different. I think we'll find out what they quote are later on, like way later, like maybe book 12, 13. Oh, whoa. Way off spoilers. We're not going to talk about that. Gotcha. That did stick out to me that that is a consistent thing that they bring up in their doctrine is we don't have biblical characters truly walking around, strictly speaking, because we don't believe in rebirth or reincarnation unless it is the son of God himself. Gotcha. Okay. So we get a little quick interlude with Buck and Zion kind of trying to dig through the rubble at Loretta's house, talking about the devastation, but it doesn't really move the plot forward. All Zion really does is like start helping dig through the wreckage. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about a point that Alex brought up and maybe you have a word for this because she's listening to Sirius Ray having Sirius Ray talk with himself because he is getting very paranoid about all the questions that Mac is asking mm -hmm. because Mac McCollum is beginning a process that in the evangelical world we would call seeking. Yeah. You've heard that before, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Where you're asking a Christian questions, you're trying to understand the doctrine, you're trying to understand what they believe, and you're asking for more information. Ray is very paranoid about this because he thinks that there is a 50-50 chance that either Mac is genuine, because Mac's always been straight up with him, or that Mac is a spy. Yeah. Because he's had to deal with Carpathia. He knows how he operates. He's not stupid. It's kind of sad that this is the case and kind of the state of affairs. And it sort of feeds into that persecution complex thing that we keep talking about. Yeah. Like, oh, they're out. They're out to get us. It kind of feeds into one of Bruce's sermon where like when Bruce is like, there might come a time where even you won't know like if I'm of God or not. So that's kind of calling back to that where 
Ray is starting to deal with, oh man, like I have to watch who I talk to because I could out myself and put myself in more serious trouble. Ray is having this real emotional, intense moment of gravitas. Like he's internally crying out to God, asking God to give him a sign that everything is okay with Mac. And Alex turned to me and said, what is the male version of a bodice ripper? A what? So you know what a bodice ripper is, right? No. It's like those romance, like those Harlequin romance novels, like that are in like medieval times or in like Renaissance times. And they're all about like women going, you know, with big, strong, manly men. And it's all a lot of internal monologue and like extreme emotions and, and everything like that. But it's from a female perspective or a more traditionally female perspective. She said, what's the male version of that? <laughs> I I don't know, but I, I can kind of, I this definitely feels like that. If uh, I said I can make an argument for Metal Gear Solid, like you know, can love bloom on a battlefield? Like they're taking everything very very seriously, and they're saying very kind of important, big military like guys doing a job sounding things, but they're also kind of weirdly writing poetry with it. Mm -hmm. But she disqualified that. She's like, no, even Metal Gear is self-aware. You can't, no, this has no self-awareness. <laughs> because it's sad boy Rayford, but now it's sad boy, determined boy, serious boy Rayford. You know what I mean? Yeah, we get, we get a lot of Rayford angst. Yes, it's angst. I guess that's really the word I was looking for. It's like grown up angst. I don't know what the male equivalent of that bodice ripper thing is because it really is that. Like he's racked with emotion and angst and paranoia and worry. And he's constantly cutting back to his inner monologue of what should I do? <laughs> And that vignette is extended through this third. And we're we're pretty much with Mac and Ray all the way through. Like they'll pick up and they'll change locations, but they'll pick up the conversation and then they'll drop it off and do something. Then they'll pick it up again. You're right. I did want to say that when he says, give me a sign, essentially what Ray is asking for is the spiritual gift of discernment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've talked about discernment specifically, but that's one you hear a lot. I don't think you have yet. Because we talked about spiritual gifts a lot, yeah. but discernment, to give it a definition, is a gift which basically gives you kind of a dowsing rod in your heart. And I know that sounds weird, but when Christians talk about in your heart, it means more like in your soul, you know, in your heart of hearts, you know, that deepest part of you that kind of pulls you in a direction. So maybe even less of a dowsing rod, more of like a string that God can take hold of and sort of just lead you in a direction. And that can mean, do I need to be in this specific place right now? Am I going the right direction in my life? Is this person telling the truth? Basically, discernment is the spiritual gift of playing with uh, tutorials on. We find out that Carpathia knows that Hattie made it to Denver, but has lost her at that point. So we don't know whether Hattie made it. And we found out Amanda's plane went down somewhere in Iraqi airspace. The plane did go down. So things aren't looking great for Amanda either. Right. In addition to Amanda's plane going down, Mac knows something else about Amanda. He describes it as... This is worse than Amanda being dead. Yeah, so what could that be? We don't know yet. Ray's going to have to pry it out of Mac over the next few chapters or the next few sections here. Right. Yeah, we cut back to Buck. We start getting more of like a post-apoc survival horror because they're starting to like forge for like food, clothes, and like anything they can salvage from the wreckage. A helicopter comes up. They assume it's like two or three choppers because of how loud it is. They were freshly assembled global community helicopters. They land. A bunch of guys come out. They start messing with utility poles and like wires. And they very quickly 
construct a cell tower and then take off again. Uh Uh-oh. Within seconds, they do this, almost like it's clockwork, and they've done it a bunch of times. So (laughs) I am still calling back to, because Alex listened to a good portion of this with me this time, and as soon as she heard the cell tower thing, she goes, it's the 5G, brother! (laughs) They try to get that 5G out there! (laughs) That's going to kill your grandma! And we had a discussion about it. People who are worried about these 5G conspiracy things, because we're going to find out what this is that they're setting up, what this weird Insta cell tower is that they're setting up, because it is very plot relevant, are reading these books and seeing this global community cell network thing run by the Antichrist and going, oh yeah, that's real. And now there's all this paranoia about 5G. Like, I think that even subconsciously, a lot of evangelicals or folks who read these books are probably still calling back to this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, am I crazy? No, think I, I think, I, I think, like, because it's a lot of paranoia with technology uh, and stuff. So uh, that, that kind of tracks, I feel. Yeah, I don't want to give the books this much credit, but like, I think for real, a lot of these tropes that people still have in a lot of the conspiracies, specifically stuff like QAnon and, you know, the mass denial and COVID denial and the microchips and Bill Gates and whatever, a lot of it goes back to these books. They didn't originate with these books. These originated with stuff that Tim LaHaye was reading and John Birch Society stuff that we have talked about way back that he already was in on and believed. I think these books definitely cemented this in the Christian or evangelical canon that all this conspiracy stuff is in there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. We also find out Zion's a secret gym rat. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's, he's pretty, he's, he's pretty fit dude. Yeah, dude. I'd highlighted that too, where he's just like jacked, (laughs) which I think is a cool thing. That's sort of a retcon from the nerd stuff we were complaining about in some of the Nikolai episodes. Like we said that all of these intellectual characters were just nerds and happened to be Jewish. And that that was a little like, eh. but like now we find out, oh, I don't know, Zion's more of a well-rounded character. They've sort of retconned him being a nerd and given him more of a, a full life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we go back to Ray and th- they go back into the thing that's worse than her being dead. And he says, all right, here it is. Don't forget you made me tell you. Carpathia talks about Amanda like he knows her, not just knows her as like just a person, but like has known her like well before she knew Rayford. Yeah. And he makes comments like she's a team player. She's in the right place. She plays a role well, that kind of stuff. So Amanda might be evil. Yeah, Amanda might be evil. And if we think back to some of the previous books, specifically the last one, we saw Nikolai having some grand old time conversing with Amanda. And he did that weird slip where he forgot her name and Nikolai never forgets someone's name. Ah. So the only reason he would do that is to indicate to Rayford, oh, I totally don't know this woman. Because we're going to find out that Nikolai has this habit of like trying to drop hints to people. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see that some in this section, but yeah, the only reason he probably did that was to distance himself from her, if this is true, which Ray says it's not because he's a liar. He works for the father of lies. Ray immediately, like, he takes it kind of well because he's like, "Eh, I don't know about that, Mac. Like, he's clearly distraught, but he's trying to take it in stride. But he points out, no, Nikolai's just trying to get to me. Right. So Amanda may have been a mole inside the, the tribulation force. So we get into chapter four. Uh, Mac and Ray get ushered back into the villain base. Um, They kind of decide like, hey, we're starting to sort of ally here. It's probably better if we don't act too chummy. Yeah. They meet with Carpathia and he's just pleased as punch 
at another catastrophe. This dude loves him a good crisis. It reminds me of, I can't remember who originally said it, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right, I can't I think it might have been Churchill it. said that. And Nikolai immediately was like, oh, Rayford, your wife, God rest her soul. And uh, he gets really defensive, like, no, she can't be dead. That's not possible. And in his head, Ray contemplates murdering Nikolai again. <laughs> so we find out that the plane actually did go down. It went down somewhere in the Tigris River. Right, which is a very significant place in the Bible. The first notable instance of it is that uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates is where supposedly the Garden of Eden is supposed to be within canon. And the Tigris and Euphrates are going to play in some of the judgments that are going to come later. Ooh, okay. Oh yeah, dude. Especially toward the end. We got a long way to go before we get there. But we cut back to Buck and Zion again. Zion brings up, hey, the earthquake did have warning signs. Maybe Chloe did escape. And Buck's like, what warning signs? He's like, I was underground. I felt the earth move. There was time to run. There was time to get away. Mm -hmm. But then we find out she is not in the garage. The car is in the garage because they make it down there and the car's there, but Chloe is not there. We find out when we go back to Rafer that the only region spared was Israel. Yeah, that's why I keep saying mostly everybody, mostly everywhere, mostly worldwide, but yes, Israel was untouched. Let's see, uh, Carpathia threatens to imprison him if he acts up anymore. <laughs> and Ray basically says, hey, jail ain't so bad. <laughs> right. But he won't accept his resignation. Ray's trying to be done, yeah. but Nikolai simply will not accept his resignation and is sitting there contemplating, literally choking the life out of him. <laughs> And they talk about how that little vignette we saw about them building that cell tower. That's going on all over the world because he's trying to rebuild New Babylon and make that the hub. And one of the ways to do that is to get communication up so that everyone can begin communicating to like help this big effort. Rayford realizes that he's not really focusing on saving many people as much as rebuilding this communication network. So he gets kind of mad about that. But Carpathia retorts, no. Like all of what we're doing depends on communication. So it's, it's important. Yeah. And you know what? I can't disagree with that Yeah, because Ray gets really mad about it, but I'm like, dude, you can do a better job of saving people. If you can coordinate your efforts, I understand why he is doing this. Yeah. We also find out that just like they've been doing all along, the GC bought up all the telecommunications companies. So here's more Illuminati stuff. They own everything. They own the big tech. They own the banks. They own the pharmaceuticals. They own everything. So they're consolidating power in the wake of a crisis. And New Babylon will be reborn as the capital of the world, mm -hmm. taking on its role as, you know, Babylon the Great. That's what we're having happen in the wake of the uh, Wrath of the Lamb, which we'll see what New Babylon looks like later. And he's right. It does become that. And Nikolai's being fantastically magnanimous with Ray. Like he's being empathetic. He is trying to be practical. Like, yeah, we know, I get it. He's the bad guy, but he's given Ray a lot of slack. That's something I've wondered. Like, why is he giving Rayford so much uh, slack is like my big thing. Cause he's kind of letting like a lion in his den, so he'll, to speak. You'll find out. Okay. <laughs> So we cut back to Buck again. I noticed something really important in this passage. Buck and the way his love for Chloe is described feels way more grounded. Yeah. It feels familial. It feels close and genuine in a way it hasn't in previous books. And I actually really appreciated it. Okay. So we learned that Zion actually plans to go back to Israel. Not a great plan, but he feels compelled, like he needs to go back and train the 144,000. These will be zealous as Paul, but new to the faith and untrained. I feel a call to meet them and greet them and teach them. 
they must be mobilized and sent out. They are already empowered. So, like, this is kind of set up like this is the army of God that he has to train. Yeah, he feels like he's going to be their leader, which is, I mean, I guess kind of cool. That's going to be way more of a focus of the next book. Okay. Um, we're going to get a lot of that. But this is Zion starting to feel his call to help guide this this new crop of believers. Then we get a super yikes line. Did you write down, Zion, you're recognizable even in Israel where everybody looks like you. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> And, like, I know what he meant, but, like, come on, dude. Come on. I really liked the kind of natural disaster moment of the guy at the service station with the shotgun. Oh, yeah. Did you write that down? Cash only, 20-gallon limit. When it's gone, it's gone. And Buck is like, I'll give you, like, a 1,000 cash for the generator. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Take a number. I can get, like, 10,000 for it by tomorrow. It felt very sort of post-apocalyptic, like, right after, you know? Mm -hmm. So Buck and Zion then sort of switch tactics. They haven't been able to find out anything about Chloe. They know the car is still there. They're not sure where she went. So they're going to switch tactics and try to go to Donnie Moore's house and check on his wife because mm-hmm. they know they've lost Donnie. So they get there and the house is mostly intact. And uh, his wife had died because uh, Sandy Moore had been at the table with her newspaper and coffee when a huge oak tree crashed through the roof with such force that it flattened her and the heavy wood table. Yeah, so this is where I wrote in my, in my notes, this is trauma porn. Yeah. This is why we gave a content warning at the beginning of the episode, because they literally described this woman's body being compressed to inches. Ugh. That is just awful. So Sandy Moore, Donnie's wife, is killed. They actually are able to take a saw underneath the floorboards and kind of get her body out from underneath the tree. That way and they take her out of the yard and they have a little impromptu prayer service they kind of recite a hymn and they bury the body and this is one of the first times that buck is able to just let go and he starts sobbing uncontrollably yeah and that's yeah i i really feel like this is like i said trauma porn um because that got me and i really sort of like had a lot of tension in my shoulders while i was reading this whole section of like looking for chloe and everything and then when that happened i was just like Oh God, like this is heavy. This is a lot to take in. And like, I know we're rushing through it because there's a lot that happens in this section of the book in this episode, but like, yeah, I was pretty tense reading most of this. I don't know about you. Yeah, it was to me as well. We're starting to get to the the pace picking up. Just more and more people are going to die. And it seems Jenkins writing style. He really just wants to linger on a lot of that. Yeah, and that's back to what you said about the books being bloodthirsty. Like, I understand that this is compelling in its own way, but like, man, it was hard to get through in some ways. Not Tribulation Force hard to get through, not boring, certainly not boring. I think we talked off mic about the fact that there is a lot of this that kind of seems like filler mm-hmm. before like big status quo changing moments, but like it's it's compelling filler, you know? Mm-hmm. No dumb time jumps. So we move into chapter five and Ray is continuing to try to big dog Nikolai, which I assume Ray's a big fella, like he's taller than Nikolai. So, you know, he's kind of leering over him and imposing whenever Nikolai tries to get in his bubble. Max says, you know, he can toss you in jail. And Ray's like, yeah, I wish he would. A lot of Ray just like wishing to be imprisoned. Yeah. And wishing to torture Nikolai. He actually moves in one passage from wanting to kill him to wanting to brutally torture him. So like a whole lot of loving kindness he got going on there, Ray. They touch again on the testimony of Carpathia bringing Fortunato back from the dead. Nikolai lays it on real thick. Yeah. Carpathia kind of has this 
Well, I'm not claiming to be messiah or magical, but you know, this is pretty interesting that this occurred, Rayford, so you should kind of look at this uh, under a certain light. He even says the line, well, when I heard that my most trusted aide and personal confidant had been lost in the ruins of our headquarters, something came over me. I simply refused to believe it. I willed it to be untrue. Nikolai basically is like, yes, I did magic. I bent the universe to my will to bring this guy back. He's saying a lot in between the lines. I mean, it's very obvious. He is basically telling Ray, you need to back off of this Antichrist stuff because he calls him on it. He's like, I know you people believe I'm the Antichrist, man. Yeah. Could an Antichrist do this? <laughs> and Leon now straight up believes that Nikolai is the Messiah. Like, no question. Ray throws it back at him. He says, oh, what, so you think you're a god now? And Nick's like, oh, it's not for me to say. Yeah, matters of faith are mysteries, he exactly says. Yeah, just like, he won't come out and say it, and you can't draw it out of him. But he's saying without saying, listen, Steele, I have phenomenal cosmic powers. You need to back off. You and your little friends need to stop mucking up my plans. Yeah. He goes so far as to say that they are moving forward with their communications initiatives, specifically cellular solar is the big one. Yep. So a cellular network that is powered by solar panels, that's what Buck and Zion saw was the beginnings of that global cell network, which is actually kind of bringing us into the modern era. Like we're looking at more of a cell network than we've ever had in these 90s books so far. So it feels mildly contemporary. Mm -hmm. And just to pour a little salt in the wound during this conversation, Nikolai just goes, yeah, we're not pulling Amanda's plan out. Yeah. If you thought we were, we're not. So you need to stop asking. Ray, again, stands his ground, throws it back at him and says, listen, if you are what you think you are, you could resurrect her, but you won't. Which is interesting. Yeah. How do, how do you feel about Nikolai sort of starting to settle into his role, letting other people, specifically Leon, put him into that role? How do you feel about that? I, I think it's interesting storytelling just because I like how it's happening because like Nikolai is kind of like playing it off like, oh, you know, this is nothing. He's not outright saying it yet. And it's almost like he's resurrecting people that are only useful to him too. Like he's very selective on how he's using his powers at first. So I kind of, I don't know. It's, what, what do you think? I think that it is specifically this conversation with Ray is almost trying to mirror the book of Matthew chapter 16. Ah, okay. Specifically when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. Chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the reason of uh, Caesarea of uh, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I just realized that's kind of funny how it's calling back to the, uh, the book of Matthew because Pontifex Mas Maximus, Peter Matthews. Oh, yeah, oh, they didn't reach uh, very far for that one. Yeah. And then uh, you want to read 17? Yeah. And then verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And he goes on and that we get the famous, you are the rock and upon this rock, I will build my church, which is referenced in uh, Age of Ultron. <laughs> if you guys are watching WandaVision and getting a lot of flashbacks to Age of Ultron that we'd all forgotten about. What I'm seeing in that scene is a mirror. So we've gotten a lot of mirrors of biblical passages and biblical scenes. That is almost an anti-version of that. If we're sticking with the anti-Christ thing, 
rather than Jesus kind of pulling it out of Peter, the person talking to the Antichrist is trying to pull it out of him. Well, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Say it. I dare you. Say you're God. I dare you. But he won't do it. Yeah. So that really sort of stuck out to me. Like the who do you say that I am was actually the, the verse that leaped to mind when I saw that. The big next thing that we get is Rayford and Mac are talking about the whole Leon's diatribe about him coming back from the dead. And they're even doubting that Carpathia is divine. He even says, well, he's not going that far to say he's God yet, but he will. The Bible says he will. And Mac's like, whoa, 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 whoa. The, wait, the Bible already talks about this? And so they get into talking about it and they even like arrange, okay, we're going to take some extra time to talk about this because looking for this training session we're about to do for this plane won't take too long. So we'll just use the rest of the time been allotted just to discuss. Yep. And they also make plans to get some scuba gear. Yep. From a guy named Al Barash, northwest of the Tigris. Yeah. They call him Albie. He's kind of a fixer that Mac knows. I didn't put my chapter break in the right place. So I don't know when this chapter ends. Where do we officially end this chapter? The most we get uh, in this chapter is uh, just a little bit more just talking about backstory. Uh, No, that's pretty much it. It's just a a lot of recap about Irene. I did write, drank a little, chased a little. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Ray is such a normie. He's talking about how he did in high school and going to college. He's like, yeah, drank a little, chased a little, but I wasn't a rascal. (laughs) Come on, man. Uh, But yeah, I just wrote another recap of Ray's life. So we know the Ray and Irene situation. We know what happened with church. I think we did find that their old church may have been Catholic or Episcopal because they talk about homilies. I don't know if homilies are in any other denominations beyond. I don't remember it in Baptist. Yeah, yeah. definitely not an evangelical thing. So I think they are in a more traditional type of church because he says the same people we saw at church, we saw at the country club, which is very much an evangelical, like looking down their nose at these Sunday go to meeting type Christians who only go as a social thing. Gotcha. We get into chapter six. Okay. That's more Irene recap. They're headed to the Albarash Tower to meet Albie. Yeah, and they meet Albie and they do give a little bit of an uh, description. They're like, yeah, he had a long nose and a turban. That was his only, that's the only description Albie gets. You'll figure out what they meant by that because Albie is always referencing Allah when he talks about God. So Albie is a Muslim. Now, he's not painted in as much of a bad light as you would assume from evangelicals. But remember, this is written in the late 90s. The modern Islamophobia that we get from the right wasn't cemented the way that it is now. He is painted more as a noble rebel against Enigma Babylon because he says that I would not turn my back on Allah and join that church. Mm-hmm. So he's painted more as a positive, noble character. So we learn that like Orthodox Jews, like the evangelicals, there's a lot of Muslims that are not turning to Enigma Babylon either. The most resistance of an Enigma Babylon is coming from the Abrahamic faiths. Yes. So we have all three yeah. now. They talk about the scuba gear. It's going to be a lot more money than they anticipated, but things are coming to get by. They're like, can we rent it? And they're like, you can't rent things on the black market. You got to buy them. You can't rent things on (laughs) Ray. Such a normie. (laughs) Can Can I just let you hold my license while I go use this? I'm good for it. I promise. 
So we go back to Buck and Zion by himself like lugs out a giant generator. So uh, again, Zion is strapped. <laughs> yeah, dude. I own a generator. They are very heavy. It's it's almost comical of like all the stuff that Zion is doing because he's this little dude, a character that prior has been described as kind of weak, like you said. And now he's just like bench pressing like anything he needs. Like, hey, Buck, I got this generator. He holds over it. <laughs> He's got that Pat Robertson strength. <laughs> Here's your callback. They get into Donnie's briefcase. They see a bunch of notebooks. Yeah, Buck uh, breaks into a briefcase like a pro, almost like he's stolen documents before. <laughs> right? Uh, I wouldn't put that past Buck. Nah, but against superstar reporter Buck Williams, nah, he goes wherever he needs to go to get a yeah. story. They break into those notebooks. They wonder if it's personal. It's not. It's a bunch of notes about the shelter. And they figure out that there is a shelter in Donnie Moore's backyard. And so they go off towards that. Yep. So we find out that Jenkins kind of wrote himself into a corner with collapsing the shelter in the earthquake. And he's like, oh, crap, we still need Zion a safe house. Uh, uh, uh. And I think that that's kind of weak writing. Like they run out of Loretta's house. Well, now we got Donnie's house. We're going to move in there. Uh, crap. We don't have the shelter anymore. Uh, Donnie's got one in his backyard. Like it's not great. Right. I don't mind admitting that. Like, it works fine, I guess, but it seems very Band-Aid-y. So we get back to Mac and Ray for a minute, and they talk about 216, which we talked about in the wrap-up, but they don't really figure it out. But it's a very quick scene before we go back to Buck again, and they go back to Loretta's. Yep, there's a field supervisor of Global Community Relief, Sonny Kuntz. They're taking pictures of the the building to send stats to headquarters to like get money to allocate to rebuild certain parts of the world. This is the house of Helen Cavanaugh, and she was 70 years old. Yeah, Loretta's neighbor. Yeah, Loretta's neighbor. And she had apparently seen someone run out of Loretta's house uh, that we understand now to be Chloe and is in a shelter about six miles due east of the location in a furniture store that somehow suffered very little damage. Yeah. So Mrs. Cavanaugh is in the shelter. She is the last person to have witnessed Chloe run. Yep. So we know that Chloe got away on foot, but the officer says, take a look back there. Where would you go? They assume now no one's found Chloe's body, but they assume she didn't make it. But Buck is bound and determined to find out anyway. And I also want to add as we close this chapter, look at this evil, terrible one world government just throwing around money to rebuild everything. How awful. Just garbage, terrible, evil, duh, horrible. Of all the, the bad stuff that global community is doing, they're actually like doing their part in actually providing relief effort. Uh, like I said, the, the person that was checking it out was a, a relief uh, supervisor. So they're trying to assess what has happened. Well, what you don't understand, Gavin, is it's a moral hazard. If all these people didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps to earthquake-proof their homes, that's on them, okay? <laughs> Look, it's a moral hazard if, we, if they help these people, and that's why this global community is evil. Yeah, it seems like this earthquake is a, is a you problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not invoke him, please. Okay. <laughs> I'm keeping it in, but I, I, if you get it, you get it. Oh, that was a good one. You do a really, you do a really fantastic impression. He, he would totally say that too. 
That's a direct you know. quote from him, too. Oh, it has to be. So moving into chapter seven. Yeah. It's more Mac and Ray recap, but um, did you have any lines that stuck out to you during this part? Not really, other than phones are starting to semi-work. Like, they're getting a busy signal, but it's not, like, offline. Yeah, because Buck tries to call Ray, so they're trying to connect. The only thing that stuck out to me was that the virgin birth is what makes people think sex is dirty. Mm-hmm. I'm sure in my head I have thought that, but I had never heard it verbalized. Yeah. Real quick, Mac and Ray, same old, same old. This is another one of the many recaps that we've gotten. Back to Buck. He actually calls Global Community Weekly and a ton of people are dead. They're doing full death announcements now, which sounds like an incredibly daunting task. Like only one or two of their printing presses is still operational, but they are trying to get any information they can to constantly update these kind of rolling obituaries. Chloe is marked unknown. Ray is marked okay. He knows Ray's alive, but Amanda seems to be dead. The plane went down, no survivors. Yeah, and there's this database that they have made where you can punch in any name and see if someone is dead, alive, being treated, or no whereabouts. And actually, I made a note that reminds me of the scene in The Incredibles where Mr. Incredible is trying to, like, check up on the fate of all the superheroes, and he's just punching in names and seeing, like, dead, dead, and then find, like, unknown or alive. That's what kind of happens where Buck enters in Zion's name, and then he types in Rayford Steele, Uh, he's alive, and then he looks up a few other people and sees that they're either unaccounted for, alive, or dead. Yeah, he looks for Hattie, too, and can't figure out what her real name is. Yeah, what is Hattie short for? Hilda? Hildegard? What else starts with an H? Harriet? That sounds as old as Hattie. Why did you go to Hildegard before Harriet? I I don't know. Dude, (laughs) like, not no, no offense to any Hildegards we might have listening, but, like, come on. (laughs) So we think Hattie might be alive. Chloe may be alive. And it's funny, you thought Incredibles. I thought Endgame. Because I was reading, uh, one of my friends watched Endgame uh, last night and she was talking about it. Uh, The scene where Scott goes to the memorial. Yeah. And and looks at the names, like tries to find the name in uh, San Francisco. We go back to Ray and Mac for a second. And this is a good Bible pull. He begins witnessing to Mac. Basically says, you know what, Mac? I trust you. Gloves off. I'm going to tell you the plan of salvation. And this is one of the first witnessing moments Ray has ever truly done. We've seen pastors do it. We've seen, you know, Zion do it. We've seen other things here and there. But now one of our main point of view characters is actually truly getting to share his faith with someone. And he actually turns to Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, which we've referenced before. You want to pull that up real quick? Actually, I'll just read it straight out of the book in this one. Hit it. Um, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Yep. So that is part of some verses in Romans that you get used pretty often when giving the plan of salvation. And we'll talk about that when it comes up either in this book or the next one. A character very specifically refers to the Romans road. So I actually want to put a pin in that so that we come back to it later. Okay. Ray and Mac get back to the shelter and they get hit with separate meetings. Ray's going to meet with Leon. Mac's going to meet with Nikolai. Ah, okay. So Ray's paranoia senses are immediately going eh, 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 automatically because he still doesn't entirely trust what's up with Mac, but he's he's going ahead with it anyway. Mm-hmm. And Leon wants to be pals now. Yeah. 
Like, he wants to reconcile. He's being magnanimous. He's like, Captain Steele, listen, I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm a new guy. A whole new Leonardo, using his full name. And we find out he's also bestowed on Nikolai the title of His Excellency. That's a big uh, point of contention because Rayford's not all about these new titles and the, the pompousness of it. And he's having a hard time like committing and like even very talking back to Leonardo about it. And that's what's getting under Leon's skin. He's not a fan. Now, His Excellency, is that a title reserved for the Pope? Is that just a Pope only title? As far as you know? I think so. I don't think like bishops or cardinals are excellent. Because cardinals get eminence. Yeah. Your eminence? I believe so. Yeah, but I think excellency is that they say in the book it's a title of divinity. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about that because I've always just heard like excellency thrown around in like fiction. But yeah, Leon's not too keen on the fact that Steele's not taking him seriously, which I mean, would you? I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not taking this goober seriously. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But that's what moves us into chapter eight. Chapter eight is where we're going to wrap. Buck makes his way to the furniture store, finds Mrs. Cavanaugh flanked in one of the hospital beds by two people who he refers to as Thumbsucker and Homeless. I put, that's another ugh moment. Bro, it's an absolute disdain for, I guess Thumbsucker is supposed to be someone who is experiencing like some mental issues. And then obviously Homeless is someone who's like dirty or is like clutching a a bag. Like, you know, Buck the rich guy is going in and being like, ugh, the pores. Right. I don't like it. I did not like it. And like everyone kind of has like a nameplate in front of their bed anyway. So he could have like looked at that. But no, Thumbsucker and Homeless. That's what we get. The woman was just like, I think I met your wife. Was her name Corky? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, we know where uh, Corky Williams is. Corky Wilson. Yeah, God. So yes, this sweet little old lady uh, who miraculously survived the earthquake, Loretta's neighbor, she did see Chloe take off into the woods. Ah, uh, okay. Out behind Loretta's house. Mm-hmm. So we've confirmed she made it out. She tried to like pull the car out drive away, realized she couldn't, parked the car in the garage, ran out of the garage, took off into the trees. Chloe's still alive, Buck thought. And so we have hope. On Buck's side anyway, because we're about to find something else out about the Ray side of things that I don't even think Ray knows yet. So I'll let you take this, this bit here. Okay, so, yeah, the first thing Dr. Rosenweig asked about was your well-being, Captain Steele. And then, right after he asks about his well-being, he asks about Buck, Chloe, and then Zion ben Judah. And they start interrogating him, like, hey, so you know where Zion ben Judah is? Where, where is he? And he's like, I don't have any knowledge of him, which is not a lie. He, he, I don't, well, is it a lie at this point? I think it's not technically a lie because Ray doesn't know if Zion is dead or alive and doesn't know precisely where he is. He knows where he's hiding out. Does yeah, he know okay. If he made yeah, it? Uh, no. Does he know if he's currently in the shelter? No, but he knows where he was last hiding out. But that's not what they asked. They asked if he knew where he was. So we're still on the Ray is lying by omission and technicality here. You know what they're asking. So yeah, he's technically not lying, but you know. Mm-hmm. We go back to Buck and Zion. We see that Zion's running the bulletin board in full swing. People are talking on it. People are, uh, he's been posting, sending out his message, stuff like that. Finally, we get into the last bit of this section where they talk about something that they found in Bruce's personal journal on uh, his email because they find a way to like de-encrypt everything. 
so that they finally have all of the information on Bruce's laptop. And then they have just find a way to magically being unencrypted. They go, they go all hacker mode. Buck does a hack. Buck does a hack. There we go. We haven't seen that in a while. And then the screen reads this personal prayer journal, 6.35 a.m. My question this morning, Father, is what would you have me to do with this information? I don't know it to be true, but I cannot ignore it. I feel heavily my responsibility as shepherd and mentor to the tribulation force. If an interloper has compromised us, I must confront the issue. Is it possible? Could it be true? I don't claim special powers of discernment. However, I loved this woman and trusted her and believed in her from the day I met her. I thought her perfect for Rayford, and she seems so spiritually attuned. So that whole bit about Mac saying like, hey, your wife might be working for Carpathia. Bruce was picking up on that stuff too. And it was kind of weird though, because that message has been sent from Europe and it was to Bruce, but his last name had been misspelled. So there's, there's still a little bit of some suspicious stuff with all this. This actually does kind of remind me of the tribulation force, like who sent the flowers. Yeah. Stuff, oh, oh my but God. like better. Yeah. Definitely better, like higher stakes and a little bit more grounded, not dumb, but it has that feel to it. So now we are getting a little bit of confirmation that this situation with Amanda might indeed be true. She may have been a mole. Right. And I think that's as good a place as any to end this episode. We have Chloe may be alive. Amanda may also be alive, but might have been compromised. And Ray and Buck are going to move on the quest to find their wives even further in part two. As we continue Soul Harvest, the world takes sides. We're going to see a lot more side taking in both the rest of this book and in book five as we continue to move on. So thank you guys for coming on this portion of the journey with us on I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And don't instantly marry a girl after an 18-month time skip because she might be evil. Yeah! (laughs) Bye! Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, You can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And lead you astray.